Hi, and welcome to The Peace of Persistence, the show where we seek to uncover the keys to happiness and success one honest conversation at a time. I'm your host, Abigail Wright, and I'm here today with Camille Zamora. Camille and I met uh, many years ago, we just discovered, yeah, uh, singing in two separate shows up at Bard Summerscape, and I've been volunteering with her organization, Sing for Hope, since then. Camille is the co-founder and co-executive director of Sing for Hope, which is a great volunteer organization that brings the arts to those who need it most. She also is a very internationally acclaimed soprano, and she's sung with artists ranging from Placido Domingo to Sting. She's sung in ensembles like the London Symphony and Glimmerglass Opera, and she's sung on live air broadcasts with CNN, BBC Radio, Deutsche Radio, and on Sirius. <laughs> amazing. As a, a graduate of the Juilliard School, she also has been recognized by the Hispanic Congressional Caucus. Is that right? Yeah, it is. All right. Um, and as one of CNN's most intriguing people, one of New Yorkers, New Yorker of the Weeks, and as one of the top 50 Americans in philanthropy by town and country. Also, she's a regular contributor to the Huffington Post, and she is a leading voice in their artist as citizen discussion, which I'd love to hear more about. Yeah. Um, and she's spoken at and performed, I guess, at some really amazing places. She's spoken at Fortune's Most Powerful Women Summit, at the Skull World Forum, at the Aspen Ideas Festival, and even the United Nations. Camille, I'm just so happy to see oh, you again, thanks. and I'm so grateful <laughs> that you came here to talk to us. Thank oh, you so much. Thank you for having me. Of course, and among all these amazing among pianos, beautiful pianos, yeah. I would love for you to tell me more about Sing for Hope for those of our audience members who don't know. How did it get started? Where is it now? Yeah, so Sing for Hope, uh, we, we often say it's, a, it's an artist peace corps. We are a group of artists, over 2,000 artists now, who, wow. crazy, right? <laughs> um, we volunteer our time and talent uh, to bring art and sort of a shot of hope to places where uh, they could use a little hope. So these pianos are kind of a symbol and celebration of what we do and uh, uh, kind of a, you know, touchable symbols of art for all. Uh, this summer is the sixth iteration of the project. We've done it since uh, 2010. And every one of these pianos goes out to a New York City park for three weeks, um, after which they go to New York City public schools. So every one of these pianos goes on to live oh, a life. Yeah, that. It's, it's a wonderful thing. We have a partnership with the Department of Education. So every one of these pianos goes to a, a public school, many of them receiving pianos for the first time. And, uh, you know, we just feel that really, these are sort of, you know, incredible communications channels, and they bring people together. And, uh, you know, it is, it's something that kind of started with a dream, and now here we are in the sixth year of the project. Um, this summer we will place our 400th piano. So, congratulations. Yeah, we're pretty, pretty thrilled. And as you can see, they are as diverse and as beautiful and as wild as New York City itself. And every one of these is an individually credited work of art by a different artist. And so you're supporting the artists by putting their work out there Do you know, as well. It, it, that's that's part of the great joy is is really just being able to elevate these artists and share their their artwork in a public way. Um, it's a partnership, of course, with New York City Parks Department. So every one of these goes to to live in a different park across the five boroughs, and uh, folks can come and play to their hearts' content. 
I love it. Yeah. I love it. And what else does Sing for Hope do? They, we, we, in, we also volunteer at different hospitals exactly. and other organizations. Exactly. And so the through line really is artist volunteerism. It's that, that idea that we, as artists, maybe, you know, maybe we can't write a huge check to a cause, but we have this, this gift of talent that we can share in a way that elevates communities. And so we go to schools, we go to hospitals, AIDS hospices, veteran centers, senior centers, and we share songs and we share painting workshops and we share dancing, we share puppeteering, all different art forms. And the through line is that that gift. Um, and you know, I think it is a, a cliche, but it's true that in giving you receive so much. And I think so many of our artists really do report back that there's this sense of reigniting one's own creativity, I think, by reframing it, by bringing, you know, by bringing an aria to a hospital room, um, I don't know. I think it, it, it opens up new possibilities for the art form in it's really interesting true. ways. And so I thank you. Yes, well, <laughs> my, my pleasure. And thank you for, for sharing your time. I know that you've done so much with us over the years. So thank you. It's really, it, it adds so much to your life. You know, I have to say, for me, I the way that it dovetails back into my professional performing career has been, you know, an incredible discovery. I think it's allowed me to kind of take risks as a performer professionally because I... I don't know, I think once you've sung in the middle of Times Square and once you've kind of tried, I don't know, tried to sort of really share creativity in unexpected ways, it, it frees you up. Tell me more about the pianos. How did that project get started and do you have a favorite story about their influence on the New York City community? So the funniest thing about these beautiful art pianos is like a lot of wonderful things. It started as a happy accident in 2004 in this little town in Northern England, in Sheffield, England. Uh, there was a guy who was moving apartments and he couldn't get his beloved piano up the stairs. And so he left it on the street and it became this like viral community thing where he put a sign on it, said, come play me. Um, and the community just rallied around it. And for months, it became this big thing. It became known as the Sheffield Sharrow Vale Road, I think was the name of the road, um, the Sheffield Piano. And apparently, I think, you know, they even figured out kind of a little tarp system for when it would rain. And <laughs> it, it just became this wonderful sort of social experiment. And that sort of started this street piano movement. Um, there have been many different iterations. There's a terrific artist out of uh, England who has taken it to a bunch of different cities um, under the name of Play Me, I'm Yours. And uh, I think Denver does a version. Lancaster, Pennsylvania does their own version. Uh, the Orange County, California does like a, a surf-tinged version of it. Um, and and, you know, in a nutshell, I think it was 2010, we read about this and we said, my gosh, you know, this is such an amazing sort of symbol of what we do every day at Sing for Hope, which is use art as a, as a sort of a tool for a social transformation and as a way to kind of bring harmony to, you know, to the middle of our sort of wonderful urban hubbub and allow people to sort of be surprised by joy and allow for that moment of, of connection through art. Um, so... It was, you know, definitely kind of a, a, a tall order, but we were fortunate enough. We were able to pitch the idea to City Hall, to uh, the Bloomberg administration, actually, wow. and they signed on. Um, amazing public art folks um, just said, "Listen, we're going to do this." Kate Levin, who was the cultural commissioner at the time, and uh, working hand in glove with the Parks Department, we really just started to roll this out. In the first year, it was quite chaotic, um, but over the years, we've really kind of developed sort of best practices around this sort of project. And our version, the Sing for Hope piano version, um, is 
basically underpinned by three elements. First of all, every one of these pianos that you see here, um, and this year, 2017, we have 60 of them. Um, every one of them is an individually credited work of art by a different artist. So they're, um, they're I mean, it's, uh, they take my breath away, I have to say, every one of these. Um, every one of these artists was chosen by a submitted proposal, and we have an adjudication panel. Uh, we fortunately, uh, we at Sing for Hope don't have to choose. It would be too difficult, but we have experts from Christie's and the Whitney Museum who come together. We lock them in the room with all of these proposals, and literally from proposals from around the world, they choose the ones that they feel uh, will be most ideally suited to, to this program. And I mean, in this room alone, you see Elmo, which is created by Sesame Street. You see all different kinds of, of beautiful visions. This is Jesse Brown White's vision of a New York subway system. I mean, they're as diverse as you could possibly imagine. And, um, you know, we really love that aspect. It's sort of every artist's individual vision. They come here, they work for months at a time. Sing for Hope provides the pianos, we provide all of the materials, and obviously we provide the space, thanks to this wonderful company that sponsors us, Fosun. Uh, they own this tremendous building at 28 Liberty and have been kind enough to give us an entire floor to do this program. Um, so, you know, we're really able to bring it to life every year. So do you see yourself more as a performer or a philanthropist? I mean, I think philanthropist is an interesting word. I don't know technically the definition. Um, if it, I mean, so often we think of it as, as denoting gifts of large money. Uh, the cool thing about Save for Hope is it's not so much a channel for financial giving as it is really for giving of self through the medium of art. And, you know, in that sense, I have to say, I think I've found my most authentic self through this kind of community arts outreach. And I feel so fortunate because I am able to be employed um, with this funny opera singing skill that I have and that I've been trained for for my entire life. That's, that's my passion and I feel really lucky to work in that world. But I definitely think there's an interesting dovetailing that happens um, with this sort of community volunteerism. I mean, to me, they're, they're both parts of a balanced diet. Do you feel that it's part of what gives you the most satisfaction in life at this point? I can't actually imagine my life without both elements. Um, you know, it's funny, I mean, I'm a mom, and when my son was two or three years old, you know, I definitely had a sort of an inflection point when I said, you know, Sing for Hope is growing, my son is growing, you know, doing all of this plus singing sometimes feels a little overwhelming. What would it be like to focus less on my own singing? And I do have to say, I think you can't outrun your fate. I couldn't leave it behind. I just started to, to feel twitchy and I, you know, I do need to sing and I feel like I have to ride that as long as I can. I'm lucky enough, I have a, a great agent and I'm able to, to work as a singer. Um, but, you know, I think, again, partly because, frankly, the social justice aspect. I think if I didn't have this other, you know, for lack of a better word, um, sort of more radical way of sharing creativity out in the world, I think I really would feel uncomfortable. Um, Part of that is, you know, I grew up in a family where this kind of, you know, social justice work and, and, and questioning of systems was always a big part of my, my folks and our value system. My parents actually had been in the, the Peace Corps and, um, you know, I think we, I don't know, I sort of grew up with that in, in the ether. And when I was at Juilliard, I was fortunate enough to connect with Monica Yunus, my dear best friend um, and fellow Sing for Hope co-founder. And I think both of us, you know, we had a similar kind of sense of, you know, Yes, we are so honored and so fortunate to sing with orchestras in beautiful halls, but is there another way also that art can be shared? And we were at Juilliard um, during September 11th on that, on that horrible, horrific day. And um, 
you know, I think like a lot of people who are in New York City around that time, it really caused us to question what we were doing. You know, so many of us at Juilliard, I think, really started to wonder, you know, why am I locked in this practice room and the world is falling apart outside and, and where can I where can I contribute? Yeah. And um, you know, I'm not a high-level diplomat, and I, you know, I where can I plug in my gifts? And so actually that that very week of September 11th, um, we went and we started just singing actually at firehouses of all places. Uh, Juilliard shares its city block at Lincoln Center with a firehouse. And they were among the first responders that day. They had just headed right down, uh, you know, straight shot downtown and lost 11 of their brothers that day. And so two days on September 13th, two days after the fact, we went and we just sang. And these huge guys and their families who were waiting at that point, people, if you remember, were waiting yeah. to see you know, when people would come back. And there were the photographs all around town posted on all of, the, all of the polls, the traffic polls. And we just sang. And these guys, they just started to cry. And we realized that we had something to give them. And in return, that we were able to feel part of a community and part of a solution. Um, and it was just incredibly important part of our healing, I think. And so, you know, from that experience, um, we just started to realize, you know, there should be there should be other ways to to kind of convey our artistic skill set out into the world. And uh, it was an idea that picked up steam. We. Um, used to do an AIDS concert in Houston, a fundraising concert, uh, which over many years really built a lot of steam in Houston, was able to raise a lot of funds for AIDS. Monica um, was very moved after Hurricane Katrina. She raised a lot of funds for that. And we said, you know, aside from raising funds even, what if we just bring the art directly to these community locations? What if we go directly to the AIDS hospice and share our song? And so that was sort of how it started. 11 years later, um, we have a wonderful team. Our chief operating officer, Richard Robertson, leads a fantastic team, and we, um, you know, leverage uh, a roster of over 2,000 artists in all sorts of programs, uh, the through line of which is our belief that access to the arts is transformative for communities and for individuals. Where do you see Sing for Hope going in the next five, ten years? You know, really, I think our, our one of our great dreams is actually kind of what you see here, which is we are here in this amazing space because of the great generosity of this company that I mentioned, Fosun, a Chinese-based company um, that owns this tremendous skyscraper here downtown, uh, 28 Liberty. We are here because of their kindness, and it's a, it's a loan to us. Our long-term dream is really to own a home. And we're hoping that some angels will help us in this, this uh, vision because, first of all, where are you going to bring to life 88 artist design pianos? You need a lot of space for that. Aside from that, what we found is that, you know, Sig for Hope, we say it's sort of a, a hub and spokes model. We have these spokes of the, of the wheel that, that go all throughout all five boroughs, schools throughout all five boroughs, hospitals. Um, Beyond that, we actually have increased demand for sort of toolkit replications in other cities. So there really is this demand that, that kind of runs the gamut and is, is rather far-reaching, but what we need is that centralized hub that supports all of this activity. And you know, really what we've realized over time is aside from our terrific offices in Midtown, we need kind of an art center. We need this sort of art for all center from which we can support our artist partners who are volunteering their time and talent in the field. And where do you see your life heading two or five or even 10 years from now? Yes, I think, you know, first and foremost, one of the things that I'm most honored by is that I have the most incredible son. And so 
weird to think in five years he'll be 17 years old um and you know I think just you know continuing to you know it's funny I don't I think he raises me as much as I raise him I mean he's mm -hmm. this really wise little person and just to continue to to support his dreams as he tries to figure out what those are um he's uh he's definitely it's funny you know I think kids are fascinating because they in so many aspects he were you know, we resonate with each other. Obviously, we're, we're similar, but in so many ways, he's so different from me. And just to watch him continue to blossom and support that, clearly, that's one of my my greatest dreams for my own future. Um, in terms of Sing for Hope, as I say, you know, we continue to really envision and work towards a really stable, sustainable organization with stable ongoing funding, um, with continuously invigorated programming. So in my own singing, I feel really lucky to continue to work as an opera singer and to have glorious colleagues like you among them. Um, you know, I think for me also, one of my great passions, uh, some of the first music that I heard uh, is classical Spanish music. My dad played Spanish guitar. It was one of his great passions in life. And one of the first records I ever had was Victoria de los Angeles, the great Spanish soprano. And I listened to that, you know, on repeat forever. And um, you know, it really was that sort of wonderful classical Spanish sound, that, that combination of very clear, sort of bright, but also dark soprano timbre that was really what I fell in love with when I first fell in love with classical singing. Um, I've been fortunate because I have been able to sing a lot of sarzuela, um, which is, uh, for, for folks who don't know, it's basically sort of Spanish light opera. It a lot of times has dialogue, it has dance, um, and it has these wonderful, kind of op operatic full-blown melodies but with a little bit of a sort of uh, a tango kind of flair to them um, and so I, I, I love sarsuela repertoire which I'm fortunate enough to sing on on concerts fairly often and um, with my terrific manager Greenberg Artists I have a, a show that is a symphonic pops show called Tango Caliente where I sing these beautiful classical tangos arranged for soprano and orchestra um, so it's you know the classic songs of Piazzolla and Gardel and all this really yummy repertoire um, it's with the beautiful bandoneon player one of the world's greats Hector del Curto mm -hmm. and with glorious dancers um, Patricio Tocheda and Eva Lucero and uh, it's a joy. We have done it with Fort Worth Symphony and Florida Symphony, and we're about to do it with Milwaukee Symphony and uh, Dallas Symphony upcoming. So it really is just this yummy program. And, you know, that music, I do think, is really kind of underexplored. I think classical Spanish repertoire, there's something very powerful about it, those dance rhythms that are so infectious. Um, and then, you know, that in combination with the classical voice that that sort of naked, projected, full-throated timbre. It's something that audiences really love, and I have to say it's such a joy to sing it. So you've sort of mentioned your son as a bit of a mentor. Yeah, he's my mentor. He's my coach. <laughs> Do you have any mentors or gurus who specifically speak to you or have helped you to accomplish your goals? What a wonderful thing to say. So um, definitely one of my dear teachers and coaches, who is actually my son's godmother, uh, Frances Wilson, wonderful um, opera teacher and, and vocal coach accompanist from New Zealand. She's a Kiwi. She's been a tremendous force in my life. Um, my current voice teacher, Fred Karama, is just wonderful. Um, I, you know, I think on the personal level, our Sing for Hope board chair emeritus, Ava Haller. Uh, we always joke that Ava 
in the fullness of her 87 years, um, is the person that we all want to be when we grow up. She's just an incredible freedom fighter and a joyful person who um, really sort of strives for social justice, even as she just keeps this incredible sense of humor through everything that she does. Um, you know, I, I'm blessed with incredible friends. Uh, you know, certainly Monica Yunus, my Sing for Hope mate, uh, has been, you know, I think we co-mentor each other. We always joke that, you know, we know each other incredibly well because 11 years into this journey of, of creating this organization from scratch, you know, we have multiple degrees in opera. We have no degrees in business or nonprofit <laughs> science or anything like that. And we've learned so much, I think, Amazing. because, you know, to be honest, I think it speaks to the, the power of artistic habits of mind. I do think that you know, an artistic education prepares you well for entrepreneurship, it pre prepares you well for teamwork, it prepares you for humility, it prepares you to <laughs> pick yourself back up after difficulty, um, and I think it prepares you to listen and to learn. I think in, in, in a lot of ways, we definitely are, are not people who get it right every time, but we self-correct well. And that, you know, at the many different inflection points on our journey, we know how to course correct. And I think that's been a, a, a definitely a big key to the success of this organization. In addition to singing and philanthropy, you're also quite an avid speaker. Can we call you a motivational speaker? A motivational speaker. Well, if anybody's motivated, that's great. I, I, I'm happy to hear that. Wow, motivational speaker. How did that come about? And did you ever imagine yourself taking that kind of leadership role in the world? Never, no. I mean, I think we are, you know, both Monica and myself, we're honored to have been, you know, called upon to sort of speak at this at this changing moment, I think, in the arts and culture landscape. You know, some of that, frankly, is because we have our hard-earned, you know, degrees from music schools, and we sort of had a network, uh, you know, Juilliard being a kind of a wonderful launching pad. Um, the president of Juilliard was a terrific mentor, speaking of, okay. uh, Dr. Polizzi, Joseph Polizzi, wrote a terrific book called Artist as Citizen, and kind of allowed us in many ways to kind of stretch our wings even initially at Juilliard. Um, as recent grads, we sort of marched into his office and said, we have this vision, and we want you to loan us the Juilliard Theater, of course, not realizing that, you know, there's a lot of cost to even turning on the lights in a large theater like that, but he kindly, you know, allowed us to kind of stretch our wings and kind of helped us to get an initial start. Um, so, you know, from that, I think, I mean, to be honest, 11 years ago, people really did scratch their heads, I think. I, I think it was quite puzzling. The idea, frankly, of arts volunteerism was even concerning to some people because, you know, there is a sensitivity, and believe me, I understand that I make... I make money as a singer, so I understand. It's not that we're trying to say people shouldn't be paid for their artistry. In oh, fact, it's the opposite of it. Yeah. What it is is saying that artistry is an enormous currency. And like all currency, you should earn some of it, and you might enjoy giving some of it away. It's not to say you should give all of it away. And it's not to say that everyone should feel compelled to give, because maybe some people don't want to. I know personally that my life is enriched by giving some of my artistry away. And so, you know, even that idea, I think initially, frankly, a lot of managers were concerned. Mm. They didn't know if this was going to be something they wanted their clients to do until their clients started to come back and say, wow, there are interesting connections being made at Sing for Hope. There are interesting new applications of the art forms that I can experiment with in that kind of a program, doing it once a quarter or doing it once a year. That might be different than what happens when I'm paid and I show up on a gig and it's the Zitz probe. You know, it's, it's a different, it's a different kind of 
of way of stretching one's talent. So, you know, there's that, you know, frankly, with the pianos on the street, that was also another interesting moment where some people, we actually even had a, a quote from one interesting person who um, said they didn't want to support our organization anymore because they felt only people who didn't respect instruments would put a piano on the streets. You know, that was one perspective, but I think, you know, it's a changing moment. And I think people are realizing that in some ways, these beautiful classics of our art form, these, these, these instruments, these traditional ways of training the voice and, and the fingers and the body to create uh, art and to bring to life the works of Mozart and Bach and Clara Schumann and all these greats, we realize now that in some ways this is imperiled. And in order to find new audiences, we do benefit from some radical ways of shaking up the conventions. And so I think now there is an interest in how this came to be. And so initially I think people started to invite us to sort of speak and kind of do some keynotes and it was sort of shocking enough, these, these instruments and our story was sort of interesting enough that I, I think there was kind of a, you know, a level of focus on it. And I think, you know, we were crazy enough to sort of say, yes, you know, we'd love to come and speak on behalf of this idea. Certainly for us, a, a, an idea that's very important is that arts should be included in the conversation around social change. For so often there have been these, you know, heady social entrepreneurship uh, roundtables in which, you know, politics and economics play a featured role, but there hasn't been that voice from the arts and culture side of things. And we really do feel that that arts and culture piece brings a key aspect and, and can tease out themes that are really critical, especially when we're talking about, about you know, large-scale systemic change, large-scale educational revamping. We need to bring the arts voices to the table when we're talking about this. Absolutely. Thank you for doing that. Oh, please. <laughs> it's a joy. Camille, as an artist, how do you define success? I think authenticity. When, it, when you have that sense that you are, are able, I mean, to me, art is communication. And if you are able to communicate authentically, whatever your medium is, to me that is successful art making. It's funny, for whatever reason, um, I was always compelled by singing, and my voice kept getting louder and higher, so I found my way through a great public high school in, in Houston, Texas, uh, High School for the Performing and Visual Arts. I found my way to classical singing, so that has been my art form. And for me, learning how to sort of conquer the technical aspects of it, from diction to you know, sound production, to remembering your staging, to all the aspects that go into opera, conquering those technical aspects has allowed me to find my authenticity through that particular art form. Interesting. But, you know, it's, it's amazing when I look at these piano artists and I see that, you know, what they have come through to be able to execute their vision in a way that's so authentic. I mean, you just feel, you feel the sort of natural, the natural sort of joy and, and emotion that comes off of these instruments. I think, to me, success is that authentic communicative piece. Do you have any habits or traits that you'd attribute to your success and happiness? You know, I think it's some, uh, in some real simple ways, you know, for me, exercise, a bit of an addiction, uh, just get my, my blood flowing. <laughs> That's my sort of natural serotonin boost. Um, <laughs> love good coffee, love good food, love good conversation. Uh, my friends are my touchstone. Um, my beautiful crazy dog, Carly. <laughs> She's uh, definitely a big part of my, my joy. Um, simple pleasures. You know, I do think just those simple touchstones, um, which I guess, you know, if you had to put a larger, uh, a larger kind of rubric over it, it would be mindfulness. 
you know, an awareness of, of the joy that is innate in these simple moments, whether it's just a great cup of coffee or, you know, a, a good, you know, walk with your dog or just a great time with friends. I think, you know, being able to be present and, you know, it's a challenge because there's so many devices and things calling to all of us at any moment, but just to be able to, to be present and engage. And, you know, that is where I think, again, that, that tool of, of art, it allows and it trains that, that ability to, to drop, to drop in and, and connect with oneself. It's, someone once said, it's sort of like a plumb line to the soul. Mm. You know, that's, that's what the arts are. They allow us to, to go into that, into that core. And um, I, I do think that there's something very peaceful about that. That's beautiful. If there were one thing you'd like the world to see differently, what would it be? I think we all sell ourselves short. I think, I think that there is so much vast untapped potential. And I think, you know, there are a lot of different ways to address that. Um, this, you know, this theme that I guess that we're on today of, of the arts, I do think that access to the arts, access, uh, access to creativity and expression, um, that is a profound way to allow for that potential to bloom. And I think, you know, I would love for, for all of us, you know, on an individual level, uh, to allow ourselves to be greater. I think, you know, again, it, it, it's, it's, it's strange. I think on some level we're trained to maybe not think big. And, you know, I think to allow ourselves to realize we just have such vast, endless potential. And it's, it's there for us if we excavate it. Um, art is one great way to do that. It, it, it allows you to hone the inner eye and I think to sort of excavate the imagination. And I think training that on, on a regular basis, dreaming big, you know, I think that's, that's uh, something that we just have a lot more potential to do. Um, so that, I think that would be what I would wish for the world, is just live bigger. <laughs> and I always like to ask at the end of the interview, do you have any other advice for us? Nobody gets through life unscathed. And, you know, by virtue of the fact that, you know, we're or even standing upright, uh, you know, chances are we've, we've already been through a lot. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I know for me personally, I, I had a, a tough loss this last year. My sweet father passed away suddenly. Thank you. And I, uh, you know, listen, I was lucky I had him a long time. And he, in a way, he had the, the death that we all hoped to have. It was very sudden. And he had just finished a wonderful day. And, you know, he lived a very full life. He lived to be 72 years old, and he did so many amazing things in his life. That said, it's, you know, it's, it's a wound. And if anything, one of the things that I just realized is that there's no denying that life is incredibly hard, but it's so incredibly beautiful and also so funny. So, I, you know, I'm constantly, every day I'm struck by that. There are so many moments of humor and so many moments of beauty. And that is how we get through the terrible losses and the terrible wounds that are just, you know, part of being here. So I guess, you know, I don't know if that's advice, but that for me is a bit of a guiding principle um, just to know that, yes, the wounds, the difficulty, that's just part of it. We can bank on that. Um, but, but... You know, you could also bank on the fact that every single day there's such beauty and there's such humor. And that allows you to generate joy, I think. Camille, thank you so much for inviting me into your beautiful studio and for having us here today and for sharing all of your wisdom. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me.
course. And thank you so much, as always, for joining us on the Piece of Persistence. As always, if you enjoyed today's episode, please take the time for a minute to share us with a friend or rate us on IMDb, Apple Podcasts, or on YouTube. Every share and every review goes a really long way in helping a new person discover the show, so we really appreciate it. In the meantime, don't forget to subscribe for more great content. And if you know anybody that you think would be a great fit for the show, somebody who's extremely happy and has had some success in their lives, or if you just have a question you'd like to ask one of our guests, please reach out to us at pieceofpersistence at gmail.com. In the meantime, have a great couple of weeks, and we'll see you next time on The Piece of Persistence. Hey, hey.